Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? <laughs> that psalm. Were you listening when, when Bob read? Sometimes it feels like we're overwhelmed by the enemy. It, it feels like, well, the many forms of the enemy, the many forms he takes place in this world. But I love the way the psalmist ends it, even after all of that uh, talk of just the sorrow of heart and being attacked. He says, but I will sing to the Lord. And that's what we've come together to do this morning, to worship the Lord, to lift up his name, and to glorify him. And I trust we can accomplish those purposes as we've gathered, accomplish those purposes, especially as we gather around the Lord's table this morning. So let's pray together again and uh, just uh, present ourselves before the Lord this morning. Father, you are a great God, a great Heavenly Father. And as we have been studying, we are under your hand. We're in your hands. We know that you are a sovereign God who's in control of everything that goes on in this world. We just trust that in Christ, our Savior, we can come before you this morning and give you your due. Worship you as you deserve to be worshipped, which has more to do with our hearts than the, the quality and character of our ability to sing or our, even our, our ability to understand your truth. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for what he did on our behalf. How he won the victory over sin and death. How he made us righteous. Lord, we just ask that as we come together this morning, that it will be with a fuller understanding of that truth, that mystery, how your righteousness becomes ours and that we will lift up your name with hearts that are filled with joy because we know what you have accomplished on our behalf. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. And we just ask that you would continue to direct us in our time, especially as we look into your word right now. Amen. Well, last week we were talking about humility, that uh, second last paragraph of the letter uh, of First Peter, and we saw that true humility is far from depression, it's far from despair, from the acceptance of defeat, it's not something where we're going, oh, we know, we know we've lost. No, humility is a clear understanding of who we are and where we are in terms of the Lord. And it leads us to a perseverance despite what seems to be overcomplicated problems, overpowering opposition, and overwhelming pain. Because of humility, because of an understanding of where we're at, we're under the almighty hand of God. Nothing can touch us that God does not want to touch us. It's not that we're never going to suffer. That becomes obvious in this letter that Peter's writing. But when we understand, when we accept with clear hands that we're under the mighty hand of God and we're not intoxicated by our own pride and arrogance, 
We understand that being under his hand is not being trapped by him, but it's being protected by him. It's being cared for by him. It, it gives us a purpose and an understanding of what's going on in this life. And all we need to do when it comes to the evil that's going on in this world, when it comes to these supposed attacks on us, all we need to do is, it tells us, resist. We don't have to win any battles. The battles have been won. We don't have to protect ourselves because God is protecting us. We simply are given this responsibility to resist, to make sure we're walking in faith, to stand firm, to hold on to this true faith for a little while. Soon, soon relief will come. And you think about that, that is a curiously imprecise statement. Hang on for a little while. Help is coming soon. And for those without faith, that impreciseness brings a sense of despair. And they say, when? You know, when are we going to be helped? But for those who have faith, we understand it's just hang on a little bit longer. God knows what we can take. He's cared for us before and he will care for us again and he'll give us everything we need to get through. I was thinking of that, the idea of a clarity and understanding of what's going on. And I thought of a story I'd heard about a long time ago, uh, a lady named Florence Chadwick. You remember Florence? No, you don't. I didn't remember her name either. But back in 1952... Uh, Florence Chadwick, who was an open water swimmer, she liked to do those long distance open water swim. She decided she was going to swim from Catalina Island to the coast of California. And so she set out from the island with the boats and she was going to go about 20 miles through the open water and it's cold water. Forget California, there's cold water there and it's rough water. And she was swimming and there you know, going along beside her in these boats and her mother was there and eventually she, she said, pull me out of the water, I can't do it. She was overwhelmed, she was in pain, she was suffering and the fog had rolled in and it was like she's just there paddling in the middle of this, this fog. And you know, they pulled her out of the water into the boat and shortly after they did that, a wind came up and the fog cleared and she saw she was less than a mile from shore. A few months later, Florence Chadwick swam from Catalina Island to the California coast. The same choppy water, the same cold water, the same fog came in again but she said, when I got out of the boat the last time and the fog cleared, I memorized that coastline. And so the next time she was swimming, even though it was, everything was the same, even though there was a fog, she had in her mind an image of where she was actually at. 
It wasn't a hope so sort of thing. She had the reality of what was going on in her mind. The coast is not that far away. And so despite the pain, despite the suffering, despite the, the fog, she said, this is what is real. And she kept going. And that's what humility is all about. Understanding reality. Same fog, the same weakness in our minds the same suffering, the same pain, but an understanding of the reality. We're under the mighty hand of God. He's caring for us. And we can, with him, with his strength, with his power, we can keep going on. Well, as I considered bringing this study to a conclusion after chopping this whole letter up into paragraphs, one paragraph a week, basically, I I went back and I read through the letter. And the one thing that I think maybe I did a disservice to was the theme of suffering. This subject permeated the book. It was dealt with directly, it was direct, dealt with openly throughout the heart of this letter. You just have to go back and, and you quickly note that. You jump into chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Or how about 3.18? Chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Or chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, In the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Or go back to chapter 2, verse 18. It says, servants, a very practical situation. Workers, be subject to your masters with all respect, Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So there's this clear call throughout the letter to face even unfair suffering as Christ did. Because it's what we're called to. This is the point of the Christian life. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 18, it says two times, this is a gracious thing. And we go, this is gracious? This is a gracious thing that we're allowed, we're given the privilege, says that in Philippians, to suffer? (laughs) We don't think so sometimes, do we? It doesn't feel gracious when we're suffering especially through some injustice that we think, boy, this could be fixed so simply. If people would just think rightly, 
Same thing was true with Jesus Christ when he was in this world, when he faced what he faced. And what we get is the idea that Peter's telling us is this is what it's all about. This is what the Christian life is all about. This is what Christ's life was all about. When one is willing to suffer obediently, even what seems to be arbitrary suffering, as Christ did, just a willingness to take on and say, I will do what is right, no matter how bad it is, because it is right. I remember a, a friend who I'd been with in college and he was always a little overweight and I saw him a couple of years after college and the guy was like trim. And I said, you look great, Todd. And he goes, I said, what was the secret? He goes, eat everything that looks like broccoli. <laughs> Just be willing to do Anything you don't want to do, just do it. And that, you know, a very physical illustration. But the spiritual truth is there. So many things in life, God has imprinted this same truth on. Be willing to do what you don't want to do. Because you know it's right. And this is the Christian life. This is what we've been called to. It's not that we're doing something that we're going to save ourselves or we're going to help other people through our suffering, but we're joining with Christ in complete obedience. And as we do that, boy, Paul tells us in Philippians 3 that there's fellowship in that suffering, that we come to know Christ in a deeper way. So we see it obviously presented, this idea <coughs> of suffering. But it's also hidden in all, all through the book as well. It's there in, in maybe more subtle ways. When we think of how the book began. It talked about the elect exiles. Paul was writing to the elect exiles. And I think I called them redeemed refugees. Because, you know, we don't, you know, what's an exile? Well, we know the term refugee, and we see what's going on in the world around us today, and we know the suffering that is involved as people are displaced from one country to the other, and all the turmoil they go through. We think, yeah, even in that greeting, Paul recognized he was writing to a suffering people, a people who are suffering because of geographical move, suffering because of spiritual persecution, The whole book's about suffering. And then we come to the last few verses, the, the final greeting, sort of the tag that Peter puts at the end of this letter. And once again, we find it's about suffering. Maybe a little too subtle for us at first reading, but as we think of the the letter, the history of the letter, and who's involved in this story. It's there. It's there once again. It's there in the, the commendation of the courier of the letter. It's there in the command to the converted. It's there in the courtesy of the community that Paul is 
writing from. And we're going to quickly look at these things. First of all, let's read these verses. Peter says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is, listen once again, the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And then this curious greeting. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Well, first of all, let's look at the commendation of the courier. The experts say this guy, Silvanus, was not, you know, sometimes how... Paul had somebody write the letter for him as he dictated it. Well, this guy, as they read through and as they study it, they say the way he is mentioned, Sylvanus is not a guy who was writing it, but he was the guy who actually took the letter to these exiles, these elect exiles. So he was the, the courier. He was the guy who was delivery. He was on delivery. He wasn't the scribe. But more fascinating was who is this guy? Well, you know, Sylvanus is the Greek rendering of the name Silas. Do you remember who Silas was? Do you remember how he came up all through the book of Acts? Do you remember how he traveled with Paul? Do you remember how in various of Paul's letters he mentioned Greetings from Silas, who was with him. And so once again, we get this idea, oh yeah, Peter and Paul had a closely connected ministry. We see that in the theology. Some of the things that Peter has said in this letter, like they reflect very much what Paul said. And they shared the same group of people who were out doing ministry. We know that, as we talked about this as we studied Romans Uh, in the Bible study, how both these men ended up in Rome. And before that, we studied the Gospel of Mark, which was, you saw it here, Mark was like a son to Peter. The Gospel of Mark is like the Gospel of Peter. Peter gave all his firsthand information to Mark, and that's why there's some things that come up in the Gospel of Mark that don't come up in the other Gospels. Because we know we're getting Peter's take on it. And so we see this connection in the ministry. And the one thing that amazes me is we always remember in Acts how Peter and Paul had that disagreement. How they went toe-to-toe. Well, at least Paul went toe-to-toe with Peter over the issue that Peter was beginning to favor the Jews. And he would you know, do some things with the Gentiles as long as there weren't Jews present. Then when the Jews were present, he was like all focused on them. And Paul said, no way, you can't do that. It's all about Jesus Christ. That is the focus. That's the most important thing. And Christ is over everyone. There's no division between Jew and and Greek. And it's amazing to me, not just that, there was this disagreement, not just that they, 
they, they went together and we find out what is truth because of it. But the fact that they afterwards were in ministry together, that there was this connection, wasn't that the relationship was ruined, but hey, Christ is overall. Christ heals relationships. Christ gives us the grace to accept one another, to love one another. And so we see what happened in this situation, but particularly too, because of this letter, because of the subject matter of suffering in this letter, we think of this man who's the courier, Silas, bringing this letter to the people. And as they met him, they would know who he is. Uh, this is Silas. And do you remember who he was? Do you remember on that journey, that missionary journey, when Paul and Silas went into Philippi? And they began to preach in that heavily Roman, Romanized town. And there was an uproar. And they were taken, and they were beaten, and they were thrown into prison. And what happened next? They're in prison, and there was an earthquake? No, no, before the earthquake. In Acts chapter 16, it talks about Paul and Silas in the middle of the night singing praises to the Lord in the darkness. It says all the other prisoners were listening to these guys singing after they had been beaten and thrown in prison. You know, I think we, under, think, we think we understand violence because, I mean, we've seen a lot of movies and stuff like that and it's a subject that keeps coming up. But, you know, we don't understand. We just have to see a little skirmish on the street Something that's real life that's not acted out on screen, you know, where there's that safe distance. We just need to see some little interchange between a, a teller and the person in the line ahead of us, some nasty words, and we're kind of like, whoa, traumatized. These guys were taken and they were beaten for preaching the gospel, they were bleeding, they were suffering, they were in pain but they were not traumatized. They understood. We are under the mighty hand of God. Nothing happens to us apart from what he wants to have happen to us. This is all his will. You know, these guys were fully committed to serving the Lord, to doing his work, to preaching his gospel. Imagine if they were only partially committed. Imagine if they snuck into Philippi and, and you know, just preached in a small corner, or whispered the gospel to a few people and were kind of sneaking around and got caught and beat up for it. Now, these guys were fully committed to Christ, to his gospel, to preaching his truth in the open square to these people and say, this is what is true. And so they knew they were doing God's will and they knew that when they were taken into 
custody brutally. They were still in the Lord's will. They were suffering with their Lord. They were suffering as he suffered. And it was a privilege. And so they sang. And so the story would have gone out among the Christians of what happened to Paul and Silas at Philippi and how God used that to show his power, his glory in a Roman town. How God used that to save the Philippian jailer and his family. How God worked. And imagine these people who were suffering, getting a letter about suffering from a man that they knew understood suffering. Here, read this. And it would all come together. They go, oh, yeah. We are under the mighty hand of God. This is according to his purposes. This is what grace is all about. And so we understand the medium is the message. I think it was Malcolm Muggridge who said that. That the way you receive a message is part of the message. And that was true in this case because Silas, this man who knew how to suffer for Christ, was giving them this letter that was about suffering and for their suffering would help in the communication of that message. And then Peter reminds, reminds these people in this closing part of the message, the command that he gave to the converted. He says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. Don't think you've been forgotten. Don't think that things have gone wrong. Chaos has taken over. This is what living the Christian life is all about. It's all about facing suffering, whether it be outside persecution or whether it be that internal, I don't want to do this. But the Lord's saying, do it anyways. Enter into my joy. (laughs) Understand what grace is all about. It's about doing things we don't want to do. You and I, as individuals. And I don't have to present a list, do I? Because the Spirit of God is living and alive in each one of us and he's working on different things for you than maybe he's working on for me. And all we need to do is look at our lives and with the Lord's help say, yeah, Lord, I, I hear you. I know you're saying, don't do this, do this. And we need to respond by faith. Yes, Lord, I will. I will respond to you. I will honor you. I will join you in your suffering. 
I will know you. I'll come to know you better and more deeply because I've been willing to put away my, my own desires, my own pleasures, and do what you have called me to do. And this is what he's saying in this, in this reminder. He's saying, stand firm. You know, I've laid it all out for you. I'm not going to go through and rewrite the whole letter right here in the final greetings. Stand firm in these things. Stand firm. He says that in chapter 5, verse 9 as well. He talks about this idea of resisting, holding on. We know back in chapter 2, it talks about the, the unfair working conditions that they're in. Stand firm, hold on, keep going. But this is 2021. Nobody has to suffer in the year 2021, do they? No. The government will take care of us. We have insurance that will cover everything. We're protected, right? But we think back to those in our past, spiritually, and how they suffered for the gospel. I remember that song came to my mind, Am I a, excuse me, Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? Quite a question. Are you a soldier of the cross? And the one other question, another question that comes up, and this is the line that plays in my mind, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? While others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. Peter's saying, this is grace. This is a life of grace. This is what we've been called to. We've been called to suffer. And I will say this, our society at one time accepted suffering, knew what suffering was all about. They didn't think about it. They just did what was right. And there's so many examples we could pull up of that. One that came to my mind was from World War II our Canadian soldiers who were commended by Churchill as the best soldiers out there, Canadian soldiers. Why? Because of their attitude. When there was the first mustard gas attack, they say it was the Canadian soldiers who held the line. They took rags, they urinated on them, and used them for filters in order to fight and continue to fight. Pretty intense. But that was the mentality of our regular everyday society back then. And I was talking with a guy this week who said his 19-year-old daughter doesn't think much of the 40-hour work week. thinks that should change. And you go, where are we at now? And has the temperament of our society affected the temperament of the church of Jesus Christ? 
You bet it has. It's affected all of us. It does. The society we live in has an impact on us and that's why we need to be aware of it and lean against it. Fight back. Stand firm in this grace. This grace that's been extended to us by God through Jesus Christ. There's so many verses in the scripture that talk about standing firm, being steadfast. And not simply in just the risk, but also in the effort. Here's a couple of examples. Ephesians 6, 11, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Satan's attacking through multiple ways. Mysterious ways, mischievous ways, ways that we don't comprehend. There's a risk. Stand firm. Then there's 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is talking about the effort. Just that constant leaning in, doing what we know we're supposed to do. It's not so exciting. It's maybe not so glamorous. But keep going forward. Keep serving the Lord. This is reality. We need to accept the truth of what's going on in the world. if we won't go to it, reality will come to us. And I think we need to recognize everything that's happening in the world today is telling us greater challenges are coming. Are we going to be ready for them? Are we living in a way that we will be ready for the greater challenges that will come to our faith? We can't say, oh, we'll be okay. Or maybe I'm at the end of life. I, I, I won't be here. But what about our spiritual children? We want them to be among those who are restored and confirmed and strengthened and established, as it says in verse 10 of this chapter. We want them to be as strong as the community from which Peter was writing. That's the next point. The courtesy of the community who, from who, whom Peter is writing from. He says, she who is at Babylon, who's likewise chosen. He sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. It's a curious title, she who is at Babylon. We think, who is this woman? There's no name given. There's no understanding of, oh, it was this person who came up in this part of the letter or anything like that. And we remember as we studied the Gospel of Mark that Peter ended his ministry. Tradition tells us crucified upside down in Rome. And our understanding is that Peter is writing this letter from Rome. And that Rome is the diabolical world power of the time. 
just like Babylon was in its time. This worldly power opposition to God and his gospel. So Peter's saying, from she who is in Babylon, I bring greetings or give greetings. And we're left to understand that this is the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ, the congregation, the Christian church that is at Rome. And as we studied through the book of Romans, we know that (laughs) she had her issues, (laughs) that church. They had their struggles between Jew and Gentile and, and an understanding of the gospel and how it applied and They are also facing a leader, a man named Nero, who is beginning his reign and beginning to exercise his despotic power over the then known world and causing a lot of suffering for Christians. He would develop into someone who is attacking them directly. And so we understand that as Peter says, hey, greetings. This wasn't just some, hey, cheerio from, from you know, the, the church here in Rome. And there they are under palm trees just enjoying, you know, the, the ease of life. No, there's an understanding these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. These people are under, uh, are suffering under persecution. This was the church that would eventually go underground and, and be, we would find their history in the catacombs. And so there was this connection. You know, here we are suffering in exile and thinking we're maybe all alone but we get this letter and it's presented to us by Silas, a man who suffered. And, and Peter's telling us, this is what the Christian life is all about. It's choosing to do what is right, to honor God, despite what we want, despite the pressure on us. And here are our fellow pilgrims in Rome saying hi. Oh, Yeah. They're with us in the battle. They know suffering. It's always worse in the capital, right? Where the government has their tentacles into everything. Nothing escapes its notice. They're with us in this. And there's a camaraderie like soldiers in war. And you know the the affection that there can be, not personally probably, but we've seen it, among people who've shared life and death experiences, uh, life and death struggle with each other, or not with each other, together as they have faced it. And here Peter in the end encourages greet one another 
with a kiss of love. And I ask us, what signals of affection are there in the Christian church today? No, this isn't a romantic kiss. Paul makes that clear in Romans. He says it's a holy kiss. And I'm not saying that we have to take on the practices of another culture. But I'm asking us the question, what are we doing to show our brothers and sisters in Christ, our fellow soldiers, that we care deeply for them? That we love them. That we care about them. First of all, the foundation to that relationship is entering into the fray together, facing the same enemy, the same danger, and fighting shoulder to shoulder with them against the enemy. As Paul says in Philippians 3, you know, the fellowship with Christ in suffering, but there's a tremendous fellowship that is developed as we fight our common enemy together, as we resist together, as we stand firm together. But then we, we consider this idea of expressing in some way our care, our concern, our love for one another. And probably the foundation to that is just showing up. You know, we, we hear people in these speeches all the time. They always say, well, they were there for me. They were there for me. What does that mean? Well, when there was a need, that person was around. That person was there to help. That person was, was even maybe just the understanding ear to hear your complaint or your struggle or you know, there was relationship, there was fellowship. And that's true in the church. I trust at a much deeper, uh, deeper level, there is to be this being there for one another. And that's been a struggle over the last couple of years. We've tried to work our way through, well, what does that mean in the midst of, you know, something we have not faced before? And I have a feeling it's going to continue to be a struggle in this world just because of the change in our society, the change in the way people think. And we need to consider, are we prepared for that change? Are we prepared to lean against society's way of just abandoning relationship and you know, well, we're all, it's every man for himself now. Or are we ready to find ways to stand shoulder to shoulder with people, to express our love and affection for them? Are we going to be there? Not just, oh, when there's a crisis. No, be there. 
on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, fellowshipping with one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another, supporting one another in a fearless way. Because this is grace, as Peter says. It's not about ease and easiness. It's not about, you know, just going with the flow and letting other people make decisions for us. It's about listening to the orders that come from above. It's about being guided by the Spirit in our hearts. It's about knowing what is right, being convicted of what is right, and doing what is right. And keeping doing it. And continuing to do it. And then doing it some more. Enduring. And this is how Peter closes the letter with you know, just this simple greeting that points us back into the heart of the letter. Everything he's been trying to say gives example of, holds up other people who have suffered and continued to do what is right, not what is easiest because they understood that this is the life of grace. This is the gospel. This is what following Jesus Christ is all about. What an example we have. Father, help us. Help us in our day, in our age, not to let, let down, let you down, let others down. But may we continue to live out this life that you have given us, this abundant life that you've given to us, despite the different environment that is around us, the, the uniqueness of the attack that is on us, that is on your church, and maybe more precariously, the difference in the temperament of the society that we've been brought up in, that we've been conditioned by. Help us to get back to a proper relationship with you, a willingness to commit our all and to stand, to stand in truth. Our love for you and our love for one another, unfailing, unfalling, that we might know you better, see your glory and your grace in the world through your church. Help us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're just going to, we're going to see what the Lord has for us.